from verse uh, 7. So in 2002, I think it was, uh, the film Emmett's Mark was released in cinemas right throughout the UK. I wonder if you've heard of that film, Emmett's Mark. The film tells the story of a chap called Emmett Young, who was a young, up-and-coming police detective on America's East Coast. Now, one day, uh, as Emmett Young is attending what he thinks is just going to be a straightforward, routine doctor's appointment, Emmett Young gets some life-changing news as he is diagnosed with a very serious, indeed terminal illness that is soon to going to take root in his life. So far, you get it, right? So far, you know, the plot of this film and that remarkable. Here's the kicker. Okay, ready for it? Emmett Young cannot bear the idea of the degenerative effects of this illness. So what does he do? Emmett Young takes matters into his own hands. Being a homicide detective with lots of links to the underworld, Emmett Young takes out a hit on himself. So Emmett Young pays an assassin to kill him, to shoot him, and to do so in seven days' time. Okay, there's the plot of the story. Right, now, there are lots of twists and lots of turns, but you're with me in a sense. Who cares about the film? No. What I want you to think about and appreciate just now is what the filmmaker is trying to get the viewer to do at that point. You can maybe see it's really pretty transparent, isn't it? The filmmaker is trying to get the viewer to put themselves in Emmett Young's shoes and to ask themselves, well, wait a minute, what would I do if I only had a week to live? You can see that the filmmakers getting the viewer to ask that. What would I do if I only had seven days left? Well, in a room like this, in a group of people like this, I'm sure we'd all have a whole host of varied answers to that question. What would we do if we had just a week to live, okay? Some of us would have those conversations with people that we've been putting off for a very long time. Others of us are going to pursue those things that we've desired to do for absolute decades. There'd be lots of different answers This is what I reckon, though. One thing would unite every single one of us in here. If we knew we only had a week to live, everything we turn to would be infused with a sense of urgency. Isn't that right? Come on, people. If we knew we only had seven days left, I'm getting out of bed early, right? Like, that's galvanizing. Like, that's invigorating me to do whatever I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it now. I'm going to do it fast. Well, in this portion of scripture that we're looking at today, the Apostle Peter, he instructs us about relationships inside the church, okay? So Peter's going to teach us about how we are supposed to treat and care for and love each other, and so you could roll your eyes, right? Because after all, let's face it, that's a pretty well-worn theme in the life of the church. That is not the first time. (laughs) Today is not the first time that you will have heard a sermon on Christians loving, needing to love one another. We could roll our eyes at that idea. But instead, what I want you to do is to look at your Bible. And I want you to look at how Peter begins this section in verse 7. Please look at it. Because Peter does not begin the section saying to us, love one another. What does he do? Do you see? He says, the end of 
all things is at hand. Therefore, and he goes on to unpack how we have to love one another. Do you see what Peter's doing? Like right there, Peter is infusing Christian relationships with this great sense of urgency. Like here, Peter is reminding you, Christian friend, where you stand in redemptive history. The fact that you live in a time where at any moment, at any second, God could bring all of human history to this shattering conclusion. Something Peter knows should galvanize you to treat your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ in a God-honoring way. Christian relationships, but with urgency. Now, in this section of Scripture, let me just set out plan the agenda. Peter going to mention four things to us, okay? Let me just mention them to you, set them out. So here, we're, he's going to speak to us about our attitude, then our affections, then our accommodation, believe it or not, and then lastly, our abilities. Has everyone got it? Let me read it through once again with a sense of urgency he speaks to us about our attitude our affections our accommodation and then lastly our abilities our god-given uh, talents and gifts okay so have we got it and we've got scripture open in front of us to be friends okay let's think about the first one what was it our attitude our attitude okay let me just speculate for a moment and just tolerate me for a second given we've got this really pressing horizon today like the imminent return of the lord jesus christ given that's the pressing horizon i reckon if we hadn't just read first peter chapter four i reckon none of us at all not one of us in the room would have guessed which matter peter turns to first off the bat have a look at it in verse 7. And, and surely you agree it's surprising. Like, do you see what he says? So he set it out. He said, the end is near. Like, the end of all things is before us. There's all a sense of urgency. We're wondering, what's he going to say? And then he says, uh, so uh, be self-controlled and, and sober-minded. Isn't it a surprise? Isn't it a bit of a shock to us to, to, to hear that? Well, I think we'll make more sense of it if we appreciate a couple of things here. First, it's just the nature of this instruction, because can I turn it to you? What do you think Peter's calling for there? What are the terms? Be self-controlled, sober-minded. What do you think he's getting at? Like, if you're anything like I was at the start of the week, you're maybe thinking he's talking about our behavior, our actions. Maybe you think he's contrasting us with the drunkenness of Gentiles in the previous section, you know? The end is near, so, like, have some self-control and, 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 you know, some restraint. Do you think like that? Behavior? It's actually not that. I want you to, to hear this. The idea here is less about our actions and behavior than it is about how we think. See, these terms. See that one there? Self-control. Literally, in the Greek, Peter says to you, make sure as a Christian you have a clear mind. That's, that's the actual, the, the, the literal translation of that. And then sober-minded, it's not just about drunkenness or abstaining from drunkenness, is it? It's about having this alert thinking, this alert mind. Do you begin to see it or not? Like Peter's calling for us to have a sense of proportion in our thinking as Christians. To have a sense of, of balance in our thought, to have sensible minds as the people of, who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now that begins to make some sort of sense, doesn't it? A sense of proportion. But I think it will all come together if you notice the reason that he gives here. Have a look at verse 7 and how he finishes it off. Look at it. Like, do you see? He says, be self-controlled. Have this clear mind. And then he says, for the sake of your prayers and the penny drops, doesn't it? Now we get it. Now the last piece of the jigsaw falls into place because come on people do you see it like if we are a people who are living truly in the last days and in the imminent return of christ is just there then how important is it that we relate well to our god if we're living in the last days how important it is that we have a sense of balance in the way that you pray and the way that i pray i wonder friend, do you see what i mean by balance Surely, on one hand, even in the, in the face of opposition, we can't be a people who are just fully anxious all the time when we turn to pray. Why? Peter would say, because the end of all things is near. There's no need for that anxiety. But then we can't swing to the other side, can we? We can't swing to apathy when we think about prayer. Why not? Peter would say to us, because the end of all things is at hand. It is there. There's a sense of urgency in our life and our witness. We are to think well that we might pray as we ought. And so I do want to bring this to you, and I want to ask you at least consider this. You've maybe heard as a Christian this idea, have you, that we are to live in light of Christ's return. You've heard that, have you, friends? We are to live with one eye on Christ's return, the fact that Christ is soon to come back. Well, I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, is that reflected in the way that you pray? I mean, Christ's imminent return, does that color your piety, your devotional life in any way, shape, or form? The fact that you live in this this, these last days, does that really infuse a sense of urgency and clarity into, into your prayer life? Because you've come to this morning, and what has God done? God has reminded you that the end of all things is at hand. We need to have that sense of proportion that we might pray well for our own godliness, but we might pray for the lost in the short time that we have left on this earth. So our attitude. Second of all, we see something about our affections as well, don't we? Our affections. Um, amongst the many criticisms that exist uh, of the contemporary church today, amongst the many criticisms, is the accusation uh, that too much of what goes on in a church today is a bit soppy <laughs> and a bit sentimental. Isn't that right? You've got to be careful here. I am not expressing an opinion. I am just relaying a, a criticism of the church. You've heard this sort of idea before, though. I'm sure you have. That in the books, like too many of the books that we read, too many of the songs that we sing, have that sort of bit of a sort of Jesus is my boyfriend type sort of vibe to it. Well, whether that is true or not, and again, I'm not expressing any sort of opinion about it, uh, whether it's true or not, we could fear that that's where we're going right now, if you follow the text anyway, because you've noticed that having talked about prayer, that Peter now turns to love. So is it, okay, is it all going to get a little bit soppy in here? Is it, is it all going to get a little bit sentimental? Well, no. 
And this is what I want you to do this time round. I actually want you to pick up scripture and I want you to have, especially verse 8 in sight. And all I'm going to do is just point you to one or two things in verse 8 here. We'll see it's not too soppy and it's not too sentimental. First thing, if you've got it there, is notice the priority of the love. Because do you not agree with me that it's really interesting to see how Peter begins verse 8? What's the first words? Above all love. Above all love. Now let me tell you what some of the commentators and writers and scholars do with that. They say that this priority of love is really specific to Peter's first readership. Does everybody see the idea? As though Peter is saying, in normal circumstances, there isn't a priority of love. But since you're opposed, since you're a persecuted church, above all, in these circumstances, you love. You know, when the world is hostile, make sure you love the church. You see, very specific to times of opposition. Oh, is that right? Because I wonder what happens if you take a step back from First Peter. Would you not see, if you did that, that there is the priority of love for the Christian community all of the way through the New Testament scriptures? Not just at times of opposition. What's the greatest commandment, we ask Jesus, and he says, love, doesn't he? Or let me take you to Paul the Apostle. And let me take you to 1 Corinthians 13 in your minds, because everyone has heard that a thousand times at every wedding. You'd be to write 1 Corinthians 13, but Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to the Christian community. And what does Paul say? He says, have faith, have hope. But the greatest of these for the Christian community is love. Do you see it? It is not specific to times of opposition. It is not just to times of persecution. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, Christian friend, do you see there is the priority that we love each other as the people of God? Then I want you to notice the personality of this love in verse 8. Because what are you doing? Like, what is the love? Am I to send you flowers or do we blow kisses across the room, well, do you see the, the, the adjective? Do you just see the description here in verse 8? You see it? We're to keep on loving each other, so it's continuous, but we're to do it, and the word is earnestly. That's a really helpful word. That's a word that says that the way that you are to love each other, we are to love each other, is to love with a certain tenacity. In fact, literally, it is that we are to love each other at full stretch. It's the idea, not just that we're to feel a certain way about each other, but we are to act a certain way with each other. So it's not just you must experience an emotion. It's the idea that we are to serve wholeheartedly each other and serve in a way that will lead to a greater affection. So we see the priority, we see the personality of love, but we also see him unpack the love. I, I wonder, we've got visitors in here, but it's, it's surely true that most of us have been here for this sermon series in the last couple of sermons in First Peter, right? Most of us have. So do you see what's happening? <laughs> Isn't it the case that we are just hitting one difficult phrase after another in, in God's words at the moment? If you were, remember two sermons ago, do you remember Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison? Ah, uh, uh, just, you know, 
And then last time round, did you remember it? The suffering leads to us ceasing from sin as nosebleed material again. Do you see what's happened today? We have just scored a hat trick of difficult phrases because look at what Peter says at the end. What does he say about love at the end of verse 8? Do you see how he expands it, explains it? We're to love earnestly since... What? <laughs> love covers over a multitude of sins. He's not with me, people. Do we all see why that's a difficult... F- love covers over a multitude of sins. You see why it's difficult, do you? Like so many people have taken that, twisted it, as though it means that you and I can make ourselves right with God. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Do you see the thinking? They suggest if we just treat our fellow man with integrity, if we treat our fellow man well, somehow God will take note of this and God will save us. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And I pray and I hope that everyone in this room and everyone listening online understands that is absolute nonsense. We are inherently sinful. We can do absolutely nothing of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. You see it's nonsense, but we're left with the question, what does it mean? Love covers over a multitude of sins. I think it's important for you to understand and to note that Peter at this point has Proverbs 10 verse 12 in view. You don't need to look it up. Just listen, just look. Proverbs 10 verse 12. That is a verse that makes very clear that it is other people's sins, failings, that are covered over by our love. Other people's feelings covered over by our love. Do you begin to see what Peter is calling for in your life? You and I are to forgive one another. We are to be so devoted to each other in the life of the church that we can look past people's feelings. So devoted to caring for each other. So devoted to serving one another. We can look beyond it. We can look past it. Or as the Apostle Paul makes clear, Paul, not Peter, what does he say about Christian love? True Christian love, it keeps no record of wrong. And so, I have to ask you, does that sound like you? I mean, as you read First Peter chapter 4, and you begin this morning to assess, wait a minute, how is my heart towards my fellow Christian? Could it be said of you? Could it be said of London City Presbyterian Church that above all things in the way we relate to each other, above all, that we love each other earnestly? So our attitude and our affections, thirdly, our accommodation, our accommodation. Let's just catch our breath for a second. I wonder if you're with me. It's very difficult to tell because you're all wearing your masks. You could be asleep with your eyes open and I wouldn't, I wouldn't know there. Um, but if you're with me, you see what we've done. Peter set the horizon. There's urgency in the church. And he's gone from prayer to what? He's gone from prayer to love. And he's laid out a principle for us. I think because of that, there is a matter that kind of bubbles to the surface really naturally. I think there's a question that if you're engaging with us at all, you are asking this question. And you're asking Peter, how? aren't you? Yes, Peter, we are to love earnestly. Yes, that involves forgiving, looking past our error. We get that. We're to love. What does that look like? 
like true love within a church like ours, what does that involve? Well, you maybe notice that from the principle, Peter immediately in verse 9 gives us some very practical application here. Can I ask you, all of you, to please look at verse 9. Remember the question we're asking, how do we love each other? Does everyone see verse 9? Peter, how do we love? And he says, show hospitality to one another. Leave it there. Show hospitality uh, to one another. I have uh, in the past, and not all that long ago, I have spoken to you as a congregation about this theme of hospitality. Haven't I? A few times we've talked about it. In fact, and I think I got away with this, um, I gave the congregation great praise for what it's worth. And I said that of all the churches that I've ever been a part of in my life, that uh, I think the good folk at LCPC, you do hospitality uh, really well. It's one of the reasons that all those many years ago, I think it's eight years ago, that I wanted desperately to come here as the minister, not just so that I would get hospitality. That's not it. But the reason that I wanted to come was because you could see warmth and a willingness to invite strangers into people's homes to share your life, to share your food, to share your time with them. I need you to bear that in mind as I say what I'm about to say because I don't want you to be offended. I think that even here, uh, the reality is that we underappreciate the emphasis that Scripture puts on Christian hospitality. That's a thought, isn't it? Even at London City Presbyterian Church, with all of our hospitality rotas and all the hospitality that goes on on a Sunday, even amongst us, we are underappreciating the emphasis that God places in Christian, Christian hospitality. And indeed, if you were to lay out the New Testamental material on hospitality, I've got no doubt in my mind that you would be struck by that. Like from Romans to First uh, Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, the list goes on. Time and time again, God commends his people for showing hospitality. Indeed, there seems to be something in our Lord Jesus, our Lord, that seems to desire greatly that his people would open their homes and open their hearts and open their time to their fellow Christian, you notice, show hospitality to one another. Now, hang on. Wait. What, what do you, where does your heart go when I say that to you? That God desires that we have Christian hospitality. God commends Christian hospitality. What's your immediate reaction to that? Like, I reckon some of us in the room are like, yes! <laughs> because we love that, right? Like, we love hospitality. We love opening our homes and we like cooking and we like having people around. It's the other side of the coin, friends. Some of us are sighing inwardly. Why? Because hospitality is really tough. We find it tough, do we? Like sometimes it doesn't match with our personalities and everyone in the room is going to be with me when I say sometimes hospitality is tiring, right? It's tough work and it can be really costly as well. We're giving up time for people. We might not even naturally have an affiliation or a, a, a love for those people. It's costly. It's tiring. People can be really ungrateful, can't they? Well, I think because of all of that, we need to note the qualification that Peter gives us here in verse 9. It is essential for us as a congregation. 
We are to show hospitality to one another. What's the words? Come on. Without grumbling. It's a challenge, isn't it, for every single one of us who opens our... We're supposed to do this without even a thought of complaint. There is not even for the Christian to be a secret grumble, a secret groan, a secret complaint. We're to do it without grumbling. Now, at this point, I've got to... Come on, I've got to deal with the elephant in the room, the obvious thing to say. What's that? That you and I adhering to this verse is very difficult in the present climate, isn't it? I mean, look at us. We've got all of these restrictions on our houses and who we see and how we see them, when we see them. Regardless, this deserves your attention. We may need to individually and in our families think through what virtual hospitality even looks like. Is that a thing? Can we not share our time with people in a sense can we not invite them into our homes for for family worship and so forth we are certainly going to need to think through reductions in the people we host when these restrictions lift but i want you to take this away the fact that the path to a christian loving another christian it is a path that takes you out of your living room it's a path that takes you into the hall to the front door it sees you open that front door and invite your brother and sister into your life and into your home we are commanded here show hospitality to one another without grumbling and then we'll end last thing so we've seen our attitude our affections our accommodation the last thing peter speaks about is our abilities our abilities. Now, when it comes to the things that you and I are good at or gifted at, it's certainly the case, isn't it, that the Christian is always walking a fine line. (laughs) Isn't that the case? We're always kind of walking a tightrope. On one hand, we are called to be humble, right? Even when we're thinking about the stuff that we've been blessed with, we've got a natural ability with, we are still not to blow our own trumpet right? That's the one hand. On the other hand, God does make it clear in scripture, we are to think for gifts. We're to assess what it is that we're good at, right? This this tightrope, this balancing act. Well, Peter now turns to this idea. So what does he say? Well, if you look with me to verse 11, please, you get verse 11, you'll notice first thing he does is instruct us. Indeed, he kind of acts like Laura to start with. He acts like an administrator. Peter takes all of these gifts and he organizes them, do you see, into two categories. He takes all of a Christian's gifts and organizes them into two columns. We have on one hand the gifts of speaking. What are they? Preaching, teaching, encouragement, so on. That's in one column. The other column you have gifts of service, which is basically everything else. And then what he does is he gives specific instructions to each group. If our gift is that of speaking, you maybe notice that there has to be a solemnity. We have to remember we are speaking. When we preach, we are speaking the word of God. But if our gift is that of service, you see that we have to be discerning. We have to rely not on our own strength, but on the strength of God. Fine. I'll be honest with you. There's so much there. But I do not think that that is Peter's main concern and main point. And I want you to hear this. 
that Peter's chief concern is that you as a Christian, that you appreciate for whom your gifts are to be used, the beneficiary of your gift. And, and for us to get there, and we're ending with this, and you'll, you'll, you'll stick with me here. I just want to throw out this, and I want you to, to wrestle with it and consider it. See if you think this is true. That in the way that the unbelieving world assesses skills and talents, what we see when we look at that is, almost without exception, a self-serving attitude. Would you agree with that? In the way that the unbelieving world thinks about skills and talents, it's largely about using that for personal advance. I mean, you can think about that in your own life, if you would. Like from your childhood all the way through your schooling and to, you know, even employment right now. Maybe that's where you are. What does the unbelieving world say to you? It says, you're good at that. So you need to use that to advance. You need to advance materially by using that. Reputationally, you need to use that skill. You need to use that talent to further your name or to deepen your bank balance. That's the way the world thinks. And surely when you bear that in mind, what Peter says at the start of verse 10 is surely a challenge to a church like ours. Would you look at it? Who is to be the primary beneficiary of your skills and your talents? In complete contrast to the way of the world, we are to use these things to serve one another. God commands us to use our gifts to serve and to serve our fellow Christians. And so I have to ask you, what are you good at? There's every one of us in this room has skill and talent and gifts. What's yours? You good at maths? You good at music? Cooking? Carpentry? What is it? Are you good at gifts of encouragement? Good at, good at giving? Then you surely see the challenge here. We have to think through less how we use that for ourselves and we've got to think much more. How do we use that gift to serve the people in this very room just now? And why? Well, as Peter makes clear, it's because it honors our God. The one to whom Peter says, belong all the glory and all the dominion forever. And uh, I'll, I'll leave you with this. This is the last, last, last thing to, to say. Um, I think if you're not a Christian in the room or watching online, there's been something bugging you, chewing away at you since the beginning of this sermon when I started talking about Emmett Young. And the end of all things is, is at hand. I think if you're not a Christian, there's a question you're asking. And it's surely, if the end is at hand, why has God, why has God not brought all things to a conclusion? You asking that if you're not a Christian? Like Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, through the Holy Spirit, Peter said, the end is at hand. Surely you're asking, but why didn't it happen? Why hasn't it? If this is true, right? And if the gospel is true and biblical Christianity is true, then why has Jesus Christ not returned if there was this expectation and urgency? Are you asking that? I would ask you to then appreciate this as you leave and as you go home. That at least part of the reason that Christ has not returned is because of you.
that in a sense Christ delays that he might give you even just now an opportunity to turn to him in repentance and faith. This fleeting opportunity you have in this life to recognize the horror of your sin and your separation from God, to cast yourself on Jesus Christ as the only place of salvation. And if you do appreciate that, what do you see? You see far more than Emmett Young. There is a sense of urgency in your life, isn't there? The time is ticking down. In the time that you have left, you must be reconciled to God. You must come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who has actually fulfilled this section of Scripture that we have read. Don't we all see feelings here? And what has Christ done? Christ Jesus truly and properly has loved his people. He has loved his church to the extent he has laid down his life to secure salvation for all who will look to him in faith. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we uh, hear your words and we bow before you and uh, we are ashamed the very fiber, the core of our being, Lord God, by the way that we do not uh, pray as we ought. We certainly do not love each other as we should. Our hospitality might be there. Often it is grudging. And Lord God, how often it is that we concern ourselves with using our abilities only for our reputational advance. Lord, would you forgive us? And how we praise you, Lord God, that Christ Jesus has done all things well, lived perfectly, loved perfectly, and all for his heavenly Father's honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen.